The name of our podcast, Techsequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Daigle. Welcome to Tech Sequences. In 1965, the first pilot episode of Star Trek called The Cage was aired. The episode debuted the transporter, a device which rendered a person or an object into a virtual energy pattern to be sent to another location for an immersive experience or else returned to the transporter to be reconverted into matter. Fast forward to 1992, where author Neil Stevenson coined the term metaverse in his novel Snow Crash. In this metaverse, people use digital avatars of themselves to explore an online world. When Zuckerberg announced the change in the company name from Facebook to Meta in October of 2021, he outlined a similar vision of an internet where people would use digital avatars of themselves and explore shared immersive experiences. He too called it the metaverse, saying it would be the next best thing to a working teleportation device. Meta is not alone. Tech giants ranging from Alphabet and Apple to NVIDIA and Qualcomm are investing billions of dollars in this future immersive version of the internet. With all this speculation, you may be tempted to question just how real the metaverse is today. As of today, there are 400 monthly active users on the metaverse. The largest chunk comes from Roblox of 230 million, followed by Minecraft, 165 million, and Fortnite, 85 million users. The metaverse represents a huge opening for education and remote learning. The Smithsonian Institution, for example, created an augmented reality 3D coral reef exhibition using Adobe Aero, a creative AR toolkit. The 3D model serves as a remote learning experience for students to study the threats facing ocean ecosystems. The metaverse represents a big opportunity for brands as well to create unique immersive customer experiences expand their market, and deepen their relationships with their customer. Some brands have already jumped in. Nike went all in on the metaverse in 2021, creating Nike Land inside Roblox and becoming one of the most notable corporations to invest heavily in a virtual environment. As of September 2022, nearly 21 million people had visited Nike Land. What it is now, a number of siloed virtual 3D spaces that are not interoperable, is a far cry of what many hope it can become, a federated metaverse with persistent identity and property rights. To get there, some key questions remain about operating systems and interoperability and governance and privacy. So how do we future-proof the metaverse? Our guest today is Enza Yanopoulos. Enza is a principal analyst on the security and risk team at Forrester and a certified information privacy professional. Enza helps organizations worldwide embed privacy and ethics in their strategic initiatives. Her research focuses on compliance with data protection rules, privacy as a competitive differentiator, ethics, and risk management. Enza speaks regularly at national and international executive conferences, and her research is often quoted in the media, including the Wall Street Journal and Forbes. Welcome, Enza. Hey, thank you for having me. 
So can you give us a sense of what is happening in the metaverse today? I mean, despite the presence of brands like Nike and even educational institutions, most of the users today are those for gaming companies, as Alexa mentioned. Is that an accurate representation of what's going on? Yes, I think as of today, this is what we uh, mainly see when we uh, really look into, into the metaverse. But I also start to think, that, um, you know, I, I will help my clients also think through what really is the opportunity. I think there was, um, um, you know, some numbers that uh, were published um, already around the uh, the market that these, um, that these can be. And I think one of the, um, the, the, the forecasts of, of Bloomberg was 800 billion. Uh, it could become an 800 billion market. Um, we heard already that the example of Nike as one of the brands that really, um, uh, you know, as invested, they continue to invest um, in the metaverse. But we have also other experiences. I think Ralph Lauren was one of the first brands that actually reported profits um, uh, linked to their presence um, in the metaverse. And we know from data that we have that when consumers engage in this kind of hybrid and experiences with brands when there is this virtually immersive part, uh, they that that activity that that, that engagement influences their uh, buying decisions. So there is a link there. That I think Ralph Lauren uh, reported one of the first to report, but also governments. One of the example is uh, Dubai that has invested into a meta a metaverse strategy linked to their digital transformation strategy. Um, and again, the forecast there is the possibility to create in the next few years um, as many as 40,000 jobs um, and an opportunity, of course, to increase the, uh, um, the GDP of the country. So I think opportunities are definitely out there. We start to see uh, some of these investments now. It's it's almost like exploring a whole new world as, as Star Trek did with the transporter technology um, and even more like the holodeck from later versions of, of Star Trek, as Alexa alluded to. But... Um, do you have a sense of um, the the key ways in which this the metaverse will develop in the coming years? Will it continue to be the kinds of silos that Alexa described, or do you think there might be some level of unification coming forward? Well, I think that if we want to have the metaverse as as you know the really exploit the full potential, we will need. Uh, to solve the, the issue of the interoperability, whether this is realistic and whether this is going to happen as soon as some of the investors want, that is what probably uh, needs to be questioned. I think that there are some, um, there have been some events uh, that the, the, with cryptocurrency, just to uh, you know, refer to something that everybody probably have read about, is um, you know all these and, and the firing, of course, in the industry, a lot of people. Uh, a lot of company actually reducing investment, reducing the workforce for these projects. This is, in a way, a good reality check, I think, because uh, I, in the last few years, we've really heard big things and really a lot of ambitions around the, the timing and the potential of the metaverse. While I think the potential is still there, I think we really need a good reality check when it comes to timing and also when it comes to the real adoption, um, which has been... Uh, overall slower that some had expected so far. So big potential, big problems to solve, and a good reality check needed. In terms of interoperability, I know from a user's perspective, users would very likely object to having to buy multiple devices just to experience different platforms on the metaverse. But the impetus to create interoperability 
seems unlikely to come from, let's say, Apple or Google or, or Microsoft, uh, simply because their model is about keeping users within their platform and monetizing their interactions. So if we want to strive for interoperability, where should that come from? Should that be from a government mandate or some sort of a regulation? Is that something that we believe users can actually demand and then get in turn from some of these uh, big tech providers? Well, it's, it's a, you know, it's a great point that around the business models that we have seen these big, um, you know, tech companies having so far and, and I agree completely. Now, um, governments have definitely a part to play here. Uh, do they have the um, the power, the appetite, the ability to influence this development this way? I don't know. Certainly, they actually I doubt they um, they do. But certainly, they could start providing, uh, or they could provide in the future some kind of standards or demanding uh, creation of standards that would allow a level of interoperability. So there is a role for government, probably not as big um, as to have the full, uh, you know, kind of responsibility and power to, to make it happen. Consumers have, are the other parts of the story, right? I think that the more they experience these, these walls, the more they understand the value to them of these immersive experiences, they might want uh, really that interoperability, as you say, using different devices, you these also different, um, what can I say, having to deal with a very different standards when it comes to governance, for example, different standards when it comes to security or to privacy, is going to be very distressing for consumers to be able to understand all the complexity there. So yes, they will push for it because that interoperability will enable those better experiences for them. Uh, but I don't think they can embrace the kind of technical and practical challenges of, of dealing with what it takes to really create the interoperability. One element that I think it's relevant here to consider is also the evolution of the, these digital identities in these spaces. I think a lot has to do with the ability of these identities to really travel from one place to another um, from a more technical perspective. But also there are big questions around uh, the kind of ability to, you know, identify potentially or, or really creating this trusted identity where I move from one place to the next, but somewhere there is someone that understands that there is a sort of legal personality attached to that identity as that identity moves around. And also what is the ability then to attach liability in the real world to those identities? So I think that these, the identity piece is really central to really uh, talk about interoperability, have a vision for that interoperability and make it happen. But with it brings also very important questions from a governance standpoint, um, which to me, as they, these, these governance questions are as important, if not more, than the technical questions that we often focus on. Yeah, I think the technical questions and whether or not the apples and Googles of the world would in fact want to you know, work together to address them and, and create something interoperable really comes down to a question of what they want, what their business model requires them to own. Um, because there are instances where those types of companies have come together to work on interoperable standards, but not, for instance, in their in their mobile platforms. Um, so I think you're right that the, you know, the the real we, we can address the technical problems if there's a will and a business model. And, and the governance questions do become the most imperative ones. I think the question of what does it mean, to, what, what does a digital identity mean 
um, once we have something even vaguely like a, a mildly interoperable metaverse are really kind of thorny. You know, what what is digital identity in, in that case? What are some of the things that you've been considering as questions around that space? Well, the, the question around identities are definitely big and important. And I think, uh, you know, we can go into the discussions of the um, anonymity, which the, which often, I think, when we think about anonymity and then the need to have a trusted identity somewhere, they become blurred somehow. Well, they are two different things. Um, when we think about the risk, which is really very much the research that I've been doing, there is this idea of this evil twin. Um, imagine that now you have in front of you someone who is talking with a voice of someone that you know uh, and a sort of avatar that is looking pretty much like someone you know. That is going to make people really struggle because I can look and feel and sound like someone you know and I can get very easily to convince you to share financial data, transactional data, personal information. And it's going to be difficult for the, the user on the other side to realize, oh, that is not who I think that person is. And then there is also this idea of these um, a digital assistants that is going to become you know, very able again to really make you feel as a user that that's someone that I trust, that I know, that's someone that I can share my details with, but in reality, that is not, uh, the identity is not, is not trusted anywhere, is not checked anywhere. And so I think there will need to be some level of assurance somehow. You can show up in different places with different names, looking in very different ways, and showing of your personality and your identity, the, the parts, the size, the face that you like the most. But somewhere we need to have a level of assurance saying this is an identity that actually is recognized somewhere, um, you know, has been um, has been recognized and we can associate to this identity uh, something, some some liability into the real world. I think that will be um, important. And then when it, when it comes to risk, well, if you, from security, I've looked into privacy a lot um, uh, as well. And, and again, it's, it's scary not only if you think about this world that we are imagining, imagining probably 10 years down the line, but actually from a privacy perspective, it, it is really scary today. Uh, even, even if, again, we are, are not experiencing, experiencing the, the metaverse as such. Yeah. When you think about how hard it is today to convince people to not, you know, click on links and email messages and, and, you know, believe that, you know, this message really is from the person you think that they're that is asking you for the detailed information. You're you're painting a picture where it's going to be even harder to get the to be assured that you know you're talking to who you think you are. The question of identity is an interesting one because you also mentioned that there's liability potentially associated with it. There's been cases already of sexual harassment on the metaverse. Um, by presumably, you know, avatars. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the attachment of liability? Because identity, liability, and privacy, to me, seem to be very much interrelated. Um, and are there any governance rules that are being worked out to establish um, a set of liability associated with an identity, or at least the ability to attach liability to an identity if that identity um, doesn't perform to the rules of the uh, of the space that they're in. Um, what is the latest work and the research? What has it shown us so far? So, like I said, there is still a lot of work to do here. There are a couple of academic papers out there that are really trying to look into the elements that are that are actually needed from a 
a legal system perspective. So uh, nothing in terms of standards or frameworks or governance models that we can follow today. Um, being in Europe, certainly uh, when we think about identity and liability, one of the things that comes to my mind is the work that has been done here in Europe around the uh, uh, digital signature and the digital identity where, um, you know, there are ways in which I can sign a document and then that document would stand the scrutiny of a court and we have fully um, binding consequences for the user. Now, while this, from a conceptual perspective, feels like the way in which some of these can happen, if you were to look at the experience and the way this is built, if you go to a bank and they need to verify your identity, sometimes they're going to ask you for an identity certificate. I remember the times where the identity certificates lived in a USB that you needed to attach to your machine. All of that is so not not in line with the expectation that we have as user today. So there is something there in terms of the ability to attach legal, full legal liability uh, and binding consequences to that digital signature of the digital identity. But the process is completely off. Now, the European Union is off with a new uh, proposal of a regulation for it. Again, looking also at the creation of digital wallets, uh, very big ambition for um, almost 80% of Europeans by 2030 to be able to have complete access to their digital identities. Um, but really, the struggle there, as an example, is to then identify not only the standards that are needed, and there is a whole discussion going on that unfortunately often becomes very political. Um, and so, again, you see the practical side of it, the experience of the user, the adoption, potential adoption being sacrificed at times for some political uh, points of view or some political battles that actually happen. Uh, but there is a lot of work in terms of really making that an experience that every user can easily um, can easily have and, and um, uh, you know, really having the, the, the sort of impact that we are expecting. So to respond to your question, there is not a good example that I, can put the, that I can point you to, to say that is the framework we should be using. There is nothing under the sun that is fully baked for us to look at, but probably a lot of work to do on this front. And would you say that, um, I mean, it sounds like it's it's not necessarily new work, but rather it's work that we need to do anyway, given what you know, what we already have by way of digital, digital interactions. Um, and this is this is more or less a forcing function of why it's, it's going to be exponentially more challenging if we don't address the address the questions with answers that work properly. Yes, and these are, uh, you know, the, the one of the identities are very difficult questions, again, from a technical perspective, from a, um, a governance perspective. But then, um, again, I think about privacy as um, we alluded to the identity, the privacy, the liability aspects, those are very much on a continuum in a way. And I think privacy in, in this continuum is one of those things that we can look at even to understand how um, actually um, simple things, th things that we could solve today are still not solved because I think at times there is a big conflict between privacy and some right. business models out there. And, and that is going to be just... Uh, you know the 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 conflict and the negative impact to user uh, to users are going to increase in the metaverse because the kind of the, the data collection that that will happen that is already happening uh, to a certain extent is unprecedented. The type of data that is shared, the easy with which these data is going to be collected, and the ability for those that are collecting the data to come to very very 
sensitive insights, sensitive conclusions about all these users that they have. You know, it's very frightening. And honestly, it wouldn't take that much to change some of it if we wanted. Um, but still, we, we are not. I want to come back to the question of privacy. But before we do, I want to talk about um, real estate on the metaverse. Um, if you had said 20 years ago that, you know, people would be paying close to half a million for virtual real estate, somebody probably would have laughed you out of the room. But just recently, a fan paid $450,000 to be a Snoop Dogg's a digital neighbor. Um, the uh, Snoop Dogg was selling a parcel in his Snoopverse, which is um, what he built in the Sandbox platform, and he wants to host events and whatnot. Um, so a fan apparently found that very attractive, paid $450,000 for that parcel of virtual real estate. Um, but real estate itself has been valued at $822 million in 2021, and it's projected to reach about $6 billion by 2028. Um, so how does how does this work? How do you evaluate um, property? How do you value property on the metaverse? And what kind of governance mechanisms need to be in place to even enforce property rights? Yeah, you got me uh, to to um, an area where I definitely not uh, an expert there. Um, I don't know how you make uh, these sorts of of um, estimates or. More importantly, how you really enforce these uh, property rights. I think the discussion around the NFTs and the fact that actually you own, you don't own, is that really something that cannot be replicated? Um, showed us that actually it was very easy to steal these supposed properties, uh, that it wasn't that difficult actually to um, uh, not only steal the property, those NFTs, but also to somehow then insert in someone's wallet NFTs that are being modified. And so it's a very different idea of property, what I own, what I don't own, um, and also my awareness of owning something, uh, you know, very different than uh, what we have in the real world. And actually, I take this as an opportunity to make a point that I think is also um, a very important one and probably one where governments will have to act soon. Um, I think that the end of the story or of the end of the vision, at least, or for the metaverse is really this idea of the um, uh, seamless ability to live in a virtual world and into the real world, where the metaverse becomes really this extension of a real world. And so we will be moving from one place to the next in a way that is seamless. But um, it's important then that the set of rules that we have in our physical world, in our digital virtual environments are actually aligned. And the idea of the property is a very good example to see how impossible it would be for any user to just have to deal with a set of concepts and rules um, and actions that are so very different in these different places. Um, and you don't know exactly then how to behave. And so there is another example uh, that someone made recently, which is you walk down the, the street and probably you are wearing your headset. And as you walk, you know, down the street is not, uh, not is, you know, is not allowed, is not a, a good idea to just see someone, have a discussion, punch someone in the face and walk over. At the same time, you shouldn't be expecting to do that in the metaverse. And so the idea is we need some harmonization of rules. Otherwise, we are going to go mad, all of us, I think, if that doesn't happen. So um, th that is a, a further challenge here. So we need we need to have societal norms 
because we're so good at that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, it, and, and I think part of the challenge is that, you know, in your description of, well, you know, you wouldn't in the real world walk over to somebody and punch them in the face and then and then walk away um, for a couple of reasons. One, because you understand it's not it's not proper behavior. And and two, because you think they might run after you and hit you and <laughs> hurt you worse. Um, <laughs> but but I mean, I think part of the challenge is that the argument is made that, well, if I punch somebody in the metaverse, it doesn't actually hurt them. You know, and it's it's that's not the right conclusion, right? It's it's if you're punching somebody, you're expressing anger at them, you're expressing an intent to hurt them, whether or not you actually do. And those whole sets of intents are what really drive the um, the fomenting of a, a lack of societal norms, a lack of rules, a lack of, of propriety. Um, and I think, you know, again, I'll go back to we're already seeing traces of this. You know, people will say things in email that they wouldn't say face to face. And if you sort of scale that up to the level of virtual worlds um, and punching people, I think that it, it does paint a picture of, of a scenario that will be kind of grim if we're not careful. Uh, let me go back to privacy. Um, you've talked in your in your speeches, you talk about privacy enhancing design for the metaverse. Um, can you talk about that? What does that mean? How, uh, privacy enhancing design and digitally embedded privacy as well. So privacy enhancing um, UX is fundamentally a set of um, designing principle, UX designing principle, that would recognize that, first of all, um, users have some cognitive biases, and so you help them overcome those biases. Um, that recognizes that there is also human errors. We make sometimes mistakes. And so it's an approach that helps us understand the options in a very clear way and also help us uh, by default, see clearly what is the privacy preserving option. And so, and, and also the other opportunities that are in front of us. Um, and I think this is something that now finally, even, you know, the regulators themselves, data protection regulators are starting to really go deeper into if, if a company has a privacy page that is difficult for the user to um, really explore, it's difficult to find information that are gonna help you make that decision. Or if you made that decision, it's very difficult to go find the settings that you have to change so that that decision actually is enforced. All of that is going to not only make for that individual very difficult to protect their own privacy, but also, uh, and this is coming from the regulators, it's actually, you can claim that the company is not complying with the rules properly, making the life of the user so difficult when it comes to privacy doesn't seem to really to respect not the, the letter, not the spirit of the regulations that we have. Um, so uh, very often I do um, say to privacy people, but also to their customer experience colleagues all the time, please go to your website, find your privacy pages today and see if there is from a user perspective something that you can do to um, make sure that people understand what you're saying. It's easy for them to make the choice that they want to make. And it's easy for them uh, to find the, the settings that they are looking for. And today I, I did an experiment with my um, headset. So I got myself myself a headset and tried to see whether there was an idea of these design principles um, as I tried to set up the privacy settings. Um, I, I went on with the story saying that I took over 400 screenshots of all the different privacy policies that I found between the app store, the device manufacturer, and, I, um, and the, the, the device itself. Um, 
it was very difficult to talk about cognitive load. It was a massive uh, cognitive load to go through. And then when finally I found that there was some data that I could keep for myself, that I didn't need to share um, with my device, actually the place where I had to go to change the settings was completely a different place from the policy I was reading. And so you have to go to the device, to the browser, to the privacy settings. And it was so complex. Actually, I thought it was the opposite of what um, good user uh, uh, design, privacy uh, user design actually is. So, uh, you know, plenty there that we can improve. What is digitally embedded privacy? Alexa, that's a, as of today, that's a vision for uh, what is what it could be, what it should be um, from a privacy perspective. Um, we have talked about what the metaverse is today, what it's going to be. And one of the ideas really is that probably in the next 10 years, when you walk, when your avatar is walking in one of these digital stores, your digital assistant will come to you. They will know exactly what you are there. They will know exactly what you're looking for. And they will show immediately the kind of goods that you might uh, by most likely is really that idea of anticipating the, the, what the user is there for, what they want. And because, of course, there is a lot of intelligence there, I think the same would apply to privacy, where you recognize a user, you recognize that it's an identity that is um, an identity which brings, uh, which brings the privacy um, uh, privacy uh, co- concepts as well. So is my preferred data sharing? Is my preferred, you know, the companies that I will share data with, which kind of data I share in a certain context? So fundamentally, is intelligence that is going to help us modulate privacy permission and privacy choices um, embedded into that, that that identity, embedded into that avatar. Exactly as you walk into one of those stores, and they will know exactly what you want from a you know a, a buying experience perspective. Um, there will be intelligence to understand what is my privacy experience, what is my privacy expectations, what do I want to share, what do I want to keep. It, it also brings up a, a larger point, I think. Uh, if you think about this immersive experience that you're you're having with multiple others, it brings up a situation where maybe it's a health issue that you don't want others to be aware of, right? And that environment has to um, to orient you to. Uh, so, you know, how would they need to manage that to be able to communicate that to you without necessarily you know, uh, doing it in such a way that lets out your private health information. That's, I think, what you're talking about, setting those kind of governance uh, systems in place. Yes, that's right, Lexa. So um, given the fact that there's multiple ways that the the metaverse can kind of develop uh, and morph over time, from now the siloed, not interoperable, multiple platforms vying for space and for attention, to ultimately this vision of this immersive experience where people can move freely from one area to another, um, have a persistent identity, have a persistent um, right to privacy, have a, a method of enforcing you know, digital property rights. What do you think um, are the key things to remember? What should we strive for um, as we try to go away from the dystopian vision of the metaverse to the more utopian version of the metaverse? Such a such a big question. Um, what I would say is generally, and this is uh, something that I uh, tell my you know clients often that I talk to from a business side um, is 
that even though we are very far from what you have just described, and it will take a lot of work and a lot of time to get there, and probably we'll get to some form of, of what we are envisioning. At the same time, um, I love that expression. This is a train that has left the station. It's not something that we are going to stop. So um, mm-hmm. a lot of companies, exactly in the same way they have built applications and websites for the internet, will be building those digital properties into the metaverse. They will be inviting customers, user patients, to go and visit them into the, you know, those properties. And there is not a single brand, not a single company that can just rely on the governance roles that the infrastructure um, is going to come with. But there is a role that every company has to play to really shape what those governance models are. How do I want my customer to be treated when they come and visit these digital properties? Which are the risks that I need to uh, really um, think about? So really having that idea, this is happening connect, you know, break silos within your organization to understand what are we investing investing in and which are some of the risks that we need to start assessing today. And it's not early to start making these risk assessments. And for the user, for those consumers, well, enjoy your experiences that you really are embracing the metaverse, but be aware that the risks are big, they are significant. And one of the things that I'm going to say, I think Leslie um, uh, already um, kind of pointed at it, is the fact that very often some of the experience that we heard of violence, of assault, even though they happen in the metaverse, there are many users reporting a very real panic, real fear, and real sense of, of abuse as it is. And so that idea of a user then thinks that that is up, that every interaction that is in the digital world is just not going to touch them. In the real world, we have plenty of examples. That is not the case. So um, again, enjoy these new experiences, explore, but at the same time, be aware of, of, of the risks and, and make sure that you're protecting yourself. On the data about online bullying uh, backs your statement up uh, quite well. Thank you so much, uh, Enza. It was really lovely to have you. It was great. Thank Thanks. you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Tech Sequences podcast. We are Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. Tech Sequences, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.